I listened to what people said they wanted and gave it to them. That's a quote from our topic of this week's episode of the Cold Star Project, the podcast about the unexpected challenges of scaling. And that man's name is Albert Kahn. You've probably never heard of him, despite the fact that he has had a major influence on uh, our world today, the whole thing. And by the end of this episode, you'll understand what I mean by that. It's pretty darn exciting. So I first heard of Albert Kahn, and this is amazing because I'm an operations management trained guy, and uh, we never heard about him in, in any of the college training that we did. And I haven't read about him at all in anything that uh, I've run into going forward. Uh, where I encountered him was on a video from a lecturer, a historian named John Parshall, who normally concentrates on Japanese naval fighting in World War II, but happened to be doing a talk, a 2013 talk, on various methods of tank production, which might not sound exciting to you, but I think I've talked about it a little bit before, essentially covering the American, Soviet, and German methodologies or systems, approaches to the problem of how do we produce tanks or, you know, uh, war machines, and why the Soviets and uh, Americans together produced about four times as many tanks as the Germans were able to. That should be interesting to you. And when I tell you that Albert Kahn had a major hand in this, <laughs> that's the beginning of, hey, maybe we should look into this, right? So I watched this John Parshall, who, who's not only a historian, but an operations management guy. And, and he's pointing out things in here. And I'm like, huh, this is, this is something I need to look into. How did the Soviets produce twice as many tanks, more than actually twice as many tanks as the Germans did? in the Second World War. So, let's begin with this fellow named Albert Kahn. He's born in 1869 and immigrates to the United States with his family. His formal schooling ends at 11, but he gets a sponsorship from a sculptor and an architect firm and that, and begins to learn how to be an architect. He gets some education, travels to Europe, gets some classical inundation, I guess, of, of a real-world experience seeing things, but he's not an architect for the love of design. Let's put it that way. He's not interested in building beautiful structures. He is more about building things on time and under budget and basically making a guarantee that like when the firm of Albert Kahn says that it's going to build this gigantic structure, it's going to be built on time and under budget and whatnot. And it's, it's like you can take that to the bank. Right? That's the essence of what's going on here. So this is really cool. So at the end of his uh, period of apprenticeship where he is uh, an architect working for somebody else, he goes out and opens up his own firm and gets some early jobs remodeling houses. And they're not just anybody's houses. They're houses of industrialists like Packard. And this is how he got access to these folks. And what happens is they, these folks like Ford and Packard and, you know, the Oldsmobile people and that, they've been building factories out of wood and they're not very good. They catch fire really easily and they're not really that thermally insulated and it's not great for the workers and that. And so they're looking for a different type of construction. And this is in the 1920s that is not only really durable and solid and whatnot, but is cheap too. And so what Albert Kahn does with his brother is create and promote a style of construction centered around reinforced concrete, 
which we just take for granted today, but it was a new idea back then. So he gets work modernizing, building a brand new Packard plant. And it's great. And he uses his new technology and it turns into a good experience. And he gets to the attention of Henry Ford, who says, wow, I need you to come over here and build some very large factories for me. And again, this is not about beautiful architecture, right? This is about creating space inside that is functional. It can be used in different ways. It's, it's malleable, right? You can take it from one thing and turn it to another function really easily. So going back to his USP, his unique selling proposition, why would you hire this guy, this Albert Com? Well, he is telling you, look, I'm going to build this thing under your budget and it's going to be good quality construction. So it's not about hiring an artist like Frank Lloyd Wright, who was his contemporary, but rather getting this corporate guarantee where you're going to modularly and safely and quickly build you a factory that is flexible. Just to give you an idea of the production volume of Albert Kahn's firm, before his death in 1942, which is smack in the middle of World War II, right? His firm had built just under 2,000 buildings, and I think they're up to like 45,000 today. That firm still exists. Give you an idea of the size. Many of the things that I refer to, the stats and that, come from two great articles. One is by a paper by a lady named Claire Zimmerman, which is very good. And another, which uh, I only found like uh, after some real tinkering and researching in that, is by, uh, I hope, sorry if I butcher her name, Sonia Melnikova Reich, or Reich, don't know, it's a hyphenated name, about the Soviet problem with two unknowns, um, how an American architecture and a Soviet negotiator jump-started the industrialization of Russia. This paper brought things to a whole new level of understanding for me. It was <laughs> like I knew there was this kind of kooky thing going on here, but this really got into the meat of it. And, uh, and I, I really like that. To give you an idea of the size of factories that, that this guy is building with his company, the Willow Run Bomber plant was three and a half million square feet. Okay, maybe we understand that, maybe we don't. Another kind of measure for it, it stretches over a mile in length. Another kind of geographic measure for you, maybe an agricultural measure here. This plant, this bomber plant, covers over 65 acres of ground under one roof. <laughs> These are huge factories that Khan's firm is building. And I think back to uh, a farmhouse that I rented in 2011 in rural North Carolina that had three acres. And that was pretty big. I mean, it would take you several minutes to walk across the field, you know. And there was a little graveyard out back in that. So 65 acres, many, many times that size. The Chicago Dodge plant that he built, 40 acres. Okay. These, are, these are big factories. In 1929, he had 400 staff, 400, for an architect firm. During World War II, they went up to 600. So what happens here to really blow stuff up? So he he's gotten into this circle. He's building all these automotive plants for these American uh, automobile manufacturers and continuous manufacturing operations, right? Then we know what happens, October 1929, stock market crash. <laughs> Everything goes bad in America. And all these folks put the brakes on production, right? We don't, we don't need any more factories built, Albert. Thank you. So what can 
Albert Kahn's firm do. Now, there are still buildings to be put up and whatnot, and he's not only building uh, factories, but over in the Soviet Union, which is still quite a new nation, they are getting to, <laughs> and this is funny to really get into the details of, they are getting to a point where they are desperate for help, outside help, anybody's help, in creating factories where they can make trucks and tractors and maybe even tanks because when you see a picture of a tractor the way the soviets wanted it built they have the caterpillar propulsion system right the 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 tracks and to turn something like that as john partial pointed out in his talk into a a military vehicle tank is really easy it's not much of a stretch to go from one to the other right you have got a country here that is in trouble it, it's surrounded by enemies. The Japanese don't like the Soviet Union. Germany, despite being split up a little bit, it's in two pieces, right? Uh, and a very large Poland in between. Those three are not really friends. They all negotiate non-aggression pacts with each other, but uh, they're not really friendly. They're, they're trying to gang up two-on-one, one of these guys with Poland against somebody throughout that whole period. And uh, the United States does not yet recognize the Soviet government as the legitimate ruling organization of the old Russia. So it's not like the Soviets can just go into America and say, hey, can you guys help? What they do have is a thing called the Amtorg Trading Corporation in New York, headed at the time by a guy named Saul Braun. And Saul, I guess, was a pretty good negotiator and a pretty good visionary. He knew talent when he saw it. And these Soviets are looking for help, right? Here's what's been going on. Prior to 1917, which is the year of the revolution, less than 500 tractors existed in all of Russia, this enormous empire, right? Under 500 tractors. There is no automotive industry. Everything's still being done by a horse and cart and plow and stuff. So they are on a quest, the Soviets are, to modernize, just like the Japanese are, just like the Germans are, because they had all their industry taken away after World War I. What does Hitler have to say about this? He says, in 1924, Hitler talks about a German-Russian war against Europe. Russia would completely drop out of this war as a technical factor. The universal motorization of the world, which would be overwhelmingly decisive in the next war, could hardly be met by us. For not only has Germany itself remained shamelessly far behind in this most important field, but even with the little it has, it would have to support Russia, which even today cannot call its own single factory in which can be manufactured a motor vehicle that really runs. (laughs) He's saying it's trash. So the Soviets, being good industrial espionagers as they are, look through a number of foreign models, some German models, some American models of tractors, looking for which one, you know, which should we steal the plans of and copy and try and make ourselves. So I need you to understand this, this design that they picked was not licensed. <laughs> it was not supported by the original designer. And what they choose is something called Fordson, which is a Ford tractor model. And they've decided to build this in country, but they don't have the specifications for it. <laughs> So what happens in in 1929, they make this decision in in 1923. So six years have gone by, and Ford's production director just happens to meander into the USSR in 1929. 
and discovers that they are trying to make his product in one of their factories. And everything is so backwards. They're saying that they're producing two a day. They can barely produce 20 a month. They cannot mass produce. And he kind of giggles and he says, aha, you found out that you can't just figure out the specifications by merely pulling the machine apart. So in 1926, the Soviets have decided that they want to build a modern plant outside Stalingrad. But in order to do this, you see, the Soviets have very little hard currency. They don't have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of hard currency reserves. They've got minerals and wheat and that that they can trade for cash. So they are desperate for credit, funding of any kind, expertise. And they go to Ford and they say, will you help us do this? And Ford says, uh, no, <laughs> you guys are a terrible credit risk. I am not doing that. A couple years later, Stalin says, fine, we'll do it ourselves. And he announces the first five-year plan. He says, we want to build 20,000 tractors a year. In 1930, 90% of all the tractors in the Soviet Union are imported, mostly from the United States. And yet, in 1931, the first giant tractor plant is completed and two more are underway. And so Stalin is positively crowing about this turn of events. He says... In 1933, we didn't have a steel industry, the foundation for industrialization. Now we have it. We didn't have a tractor industry. Now we have it. We didn't have an automobile industry. Now we have it. Consequently, the Soviet Union has been converted from a weak country, unprepared for defense, into a country mighty in defense, prepared for every contingency, capable of producing on a mass scale all modern weapons of defense and of equipping its army in the event of an attack from outside. Well, we know <laughs> an attack is coming. So how did they do it? How did they make this giant leap? And the answer is Albert Kahn and Saul Braun. From 1929 through 1932, Albert Kahn's firm sends 45 staff to the Soviet Union to train and oversee 3,000 Soviet staff, becoming the largest architectural organization in the world. Think about the technology transfer that's happening through this. American manufacturing ingenuity is being transferred to Soviet engineers. The Albert Kahn engineers are teaching classes to the Soviet students, young men who are very gifted. Nobody's dumb. They're all very smart people. Just the Soviets have nothing. I mean, I need you to understand. The, <laughs> the Americans get there, and there are no drafting desks. Nobody's got any pencils. I'm not exaggerating. None of this stuff. There was one blueprint machine in the entire city of Moscow. How on earth can you get anything done under these conditions? Khan's firm pioneered standardization and modular systems. He had built factories for Ford, Chevrolet, Oldsmobile, Cadillac, Packard, Hudson, a manufacturer that is no longer, Chrysler, DeSoto. By 1938, they handled about 20% of all architect-designed industrial buildings in the United States. And we can safely say no other architect has had as much influence on industrial architecture yet. What the heck is going on here? As I said at the beginning of my talk here, his name is hardly known here or in the Soviet Union. Well, Russia now. So remember, the Soviets were looking for talent, right? <laughs> 1926, they saw Ford's River Rouge plant get put up by Albert Kahn. They saw that he had made $200 million worth of wartime structures in the First World War. 
and his firm was the first to provide a one-stop shopping approach. Because you need to understand, this isn't just, hey, we're putting up a building here. That's just part of it. There also needs to be what goes inside. What's the production flow going to be like? The first plant that Khan built was with production on several floors, and that wasn't ideal. A long, single-story structure was the best. But then what machines do you put in it? And where do you get those machines from? Because I can tell you the Soviets sure as heck weren't making them. They didn't have a machine tool industry. They had to import all that stuff. First they did it from America and maybe Germany, and then they went to England. So the fact was no Soviet architect, despite being talented and having very interesting ideas, had the experience with large-scale construction. And no, no way was anybody going to be as specialized in industrial architecture. So here's a funny thing. We've heard in this, uh, in this podcast, I think back to the Gilbreths episode, one of the early episodes that I did, uh, Taylorism and Fordism and that. They're known. These principles are known to the Soviets, and they are treated as, uh, I'll put quotes around this, intellectually neutral techniques. <laughs> so it's okay. It's okay. These are not capitalist tools. They can be used for the glory of the Soviet Union. It's okay. So, through that Amtorg organization, that trading organization in New York, with Saul Braun, two contracts are signed. The first, May 1929, for the first tractor plant for Albert Kahn's firm to build, design, build, source everything, teach these people, these Soviet engineers, what to do in that. And then, step two, January 9th, 1930, so not very long afterwards, second contract signed for Albert Kahn to be the consulting architects for all industrial construction in the Soviet Union. I mean, they were in love with this guy. It didn't last very long. <laughs> it was about a two-year honeymoon period. But during that time, boy, did they do a lot of work. Here's an interesting thing, too. We hear Henry Ford, you know, echoing through history as kind of a Nazi sympathizer in that. The New York Times, at the moment of these contracts being signed, quoted Henry Ford as giving all his patents, designs, and specifications to the Soviets for his products that they would be building. He said, I'll send engineers to the USSR, and I will also invite you to visit my plants in America to learn about mass production. So history is not always kind. Ford is quoted as saying, no matter where industry prospers, whether in India or China or Russia, the more profit there will be for everyone, including us. All the world is bound to catch some good from it. That's a very interesting quote. I think the folks at the Von Mises Institute would be very happy with that. The program, this is Stalin's five-year plan and then niching down into what they want Albert Kahn to do, calls for $2 billion in infrastructure investment in 1930 alone. They want to build four large car factories, truck factories, motorcycle factories, nine tractor and farm machinery factories, and 500 other plants for light and heavy industry. And I'll list a few at the end. But again, remember, there's no desks and no pencils. Initially, the Soviet engineers have some cultural resistance. Who are these uh, cowboy Americans coming in here? I mean, the Amer American know-how had come about through experience. And so 
the Russian engineers, the Soviet engineers, were very methodical by the book folks. We do this, and then we do that, and then we do that. And the Americans come in and go, no, no, skip that, do this, you know, we're done here, this is good. <laughs> so there's a bit of that. Now, we have a, an issue here as time goes on, and that is how do the Soviets pay for Albert Kahn's help? Because he's getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, which amounts to tens of millions in today's currency. One year, he was paid the equivalent of $12 million in 2012 currency. It's a lot of money. And so the Soviets have to pay for this somehow. And what they're doing is they're exporting wheat. They are blowing wheat out on the, on the world market. And as we know, when you raise supply, price falls. And they're starving their own people in order to do this. Now, there's other factors contributing to this starvation as well. But this is, you know, famine is resulting. And somebody needs to be blamed. And Stalin finally says, in August 1931, there's, there's a blow up. And the projects all end in March of 1932. Stalin says, oh, these evil Americans, they're uh, charging us horrible rates of interest for the, for the financing, and we can get it cheaper. And in fact, the Germans had given, and, and this is not Nazi Germany. This is Weimar Republic Germany. This is pre-Nazi Germany is really buddy-buddy with the Soviets. Even back then, they want their help. Remember from previous episode, the Germans have been hiding army and, and air force development by leasing land in Soviet uh, areas and sending their officers over the border, turning them into Soviet officers temporarily while they're on assignment there and letting them play around with tanks and planes that they're not allowed to be playing with and would be stopped from playing with if they had tried that business on, uh, on German soil. Right now, they are offering excellent credit terms to uh, Russian buyers because they want to move their products. Um, this is not playing well against uh, American financial terms. So Stalin says, that's it. Essentially saying, we've learned enough from American ingenuity. Our guys know enough now. Cut it off. And so March of 1932, it is done. So there's some numbers here from, from the end of this paper uh, that I want to read, Sonia's paper. By, I'm going to quote directly from it. By the time Khan architects and engineers left Moscow, several hundred plants and factories in 21 cities had been designed and built or were under construction. And over 4,000 Soviet architects, draftsmen, and engineers had gone through Khan training, including, according to Khan, a number of first-class specialists who were now, quote, able to lead squads and do excellent work. A couple years after Albert Kahn died, his son Louis, then president of Albert Kahn Inc., reported design and construction of some 570 plants, the equipping of those plants and supervisory training of Russians to design and build them had been what they had accomplished. In addition, Kahn's ideas formed the basis of the Soviet school of standardization and prefabrication in industrial design. And the Soviets tried to cover this up <laughs> a few years later, 1938, after the 1932, okay, you got to get out of here. They, they had written in uh, one of their journals, their architecture in the USSR journal, there has never been any affiliate of Albert Kahn's firm in Moscow. A group of American engineers was indeed invited in 1928 to Moscow under an agreement with Kahn's firm, but they worked at the Soviet organization factory 
They list this one factory. And their activity was strictly limited to technical assistance. Soviet engineers, architects, and workers inspired by the heroic ideals of socialism have themselves created plants which overshadow the best industrial facilities in the USA and by doing so damage the commerce of Mr. Khan, for whom architecture is 90% business. <laughs> In closing, I will leave you with a partial list of industrial plants in the Soviet Union that Albert Kahn, uh, architects and engineers, either designed um, or participated on. There's an airplane parts and accessories plants, two of them, an aluminum plant, an asbestos plant, not very good, <laughs> asbestos bad, but everybody liked it back in the day, automobile and assembly plants, parts and assembly plants, there were several of those, chemical products plant, several forge shops, some foundries, a freight car factory, several heat treatment plants, quite a few heavy machinery plants, uh, machine uh, tool plants, a power plant, a roller bearing plant in Moscow, uh, some steel plants and rolling mills, quite a few of those, structural steel fabricating plant, and several giant tractor plants. So it's a fascinating story of this giant technology transfer. And, and if we look at World War II and the, the production capabilities of the Soviet Union, they come from the American mass production ingenuity that was transferred over to them during this short period of time, these few years, by Albert Kahn and his engineers and architects and whatnot that enabled those factories to produce twice as many tanks as their German rifles and, uh, and knock them back. And I would make the theory, <laughs> I would postulate that Albert Codd significantly contributed to saving the Soviet Union and, and uh, getting to victory in World War II. And yet he is forgotten. I'll leave you with this thought, which my friend Jeremy Pope of the Closing Engine came up with and we were chatting about the other night. As a business leader, you kind of have two choices. You can be a Milton Friedman, Noam Chomsky, thinker, thought leader type, and be well-known and get the publicity and the fame. Or you can choose to go after the money and the power and be like Albert Kahn. And the question is, who do you want to be? <laughs> <laughs>